Welcome to our Palliative Interventional Oncology podcast series. Today we are discussing vertebroplasty and bone augmentation for painful METs and pathologic fractures. My name is Sean Tutton. I'm a professor of radiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I am delighted today to have Dr. Alexis Kalikas as our guest on this podcast. He is an associate professor of interventional radiology at the University of Athens. Dr. Kalikas, good day. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me here. It's really an honor for me and a pleasure. And I'm sure we'll have a very interesting and scientific conversation. Absolutely. So let's jump right into it. I think a lot of people listening will be interested in how you've developed your practice over the years. I think in spine interventions, uh, a question I often get asked is, you know, how do you get your referrals? You know, how did you build your practice? Maybe let's just start there and how you've developed your practice there in Athens. It's a very interesting question and a very challenging uh, also world. And as more and more doctors outside the interventional community, like neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons and anesthesiologists are getting to do these procedures, it's, it's becoming quite a turf battle. In the early days, it was easier, I presume. Uh, and we started uh, simply by going directly to the patient. So we started an outpatient clinic. We started seeing patients for bone pain and uh, spine pain. And in the same time, we were doing a lot of bone biopsies, so these were our recruitments. It was very important for us to create a primary connection to the patients uh, instead of having secondary referrals because that was our firm base to uh, build our reputation. Also, another point, we worked a lot together with the pain management group. And uh, we tried to persuade them that by doing consultancy for them on the MRI imaging, we could get more treatments uh, in bone from them too. So it was a diverse approach towards uh, directly the patients and secondary uh, referrals from the pain management and the oncologist. Uh, last but not least, we tried to persuade our orthopedic colleagues that it was not worth their time to do those interventional procedures in the OR room as uh, they could not get a good reimbursement compared to other operating procedures from orthopedic surgery. So it, it sounds like this is a focus of your practice, and by focusing on those patients and uh, being timely in contacting them with respect to their MRIs or, you know, in setting up their biopsies, that you've been able to build, you know, that clinical practice by being very available Exactly. It is very important to have a direct path approach for the patient to you, but at the same time, you must build your connections with the other specialties and show them that you're providing a significant service to their patients. So I wouldn't say it's a one focus area, but it's a divergent approach towards, first of all, a primary care uh, endpoint and secondary, the uh, referral base. Given that spine mets are kind of the most common skeletal metastases, so in my practice and I know in your practice, these are the patients that we see most commonly. Maybe you can kind of tee us up in how you approach these patients when you're seeing them for the first time. You know, key questions that they're asking, key physical exam things that you're looking for, and the specific imaging that you're looking for, and findings on your imaging. 
Right. Okay. So one of the characteristic questions the plastic surgeons ask is, what don't you like about your body? Well, our question is, what is painful about your body? So the first is to define where is the area of pain, and if that area of pain is the same with the lytic or mixed uh, lesion or the bone lesions that we have to, do, to, to attack. The second thing to evaluate is uh, what is the quality of life of the patient? What does he expect from this treatment? What can we provide to him, and how will this affect his life? Uh, third part, which is quite important also to, to state, is to see whether you're doing a curative or a local regional, what we call local regional tumor control or a palliative technique. Are we treating the patient because he has multiple meds but he has one area which is very significant for him and for his pain or are we treating the lesion to our best of our abilities to stop the cancer locally. These are two different strategies in order to deal with the bone mats. Once you've sort of identified the most painful site or maybe one or two painful sites, you've done your physical exam and, and, and seen that that physical exam localizes to the area that the patient is complaining of, you know, what's your best go-to test from an imaging perspective? Uh, undeniably, MRI is the uh, main test to do. Apart that, uh, additionally, PET-CT is very important uh, in order to identify the active lesions and at the same time verify whether this is a lytic and blastic lesion. So you need one lesion with, with one exam which will identify the soft tissue component of the lesion, but at the same time you need also the CT scan which will de define the bone content and how that our bone architecture is affected. So you need both the MRI and or PET and the CT. On the other hand, scintigraphy in general will give you a better appreciation of the whole bone metastasis field. So if you're looking around to find uh, multiple meds and see uh, what are, how are those are affecting, a bone scintigraphy also is quite important to have a better evaluation of the whole patient's condition. And, and do you find that the patients are coming with all of those tests or do you end up having to order those tests? I mean, how do you set up your I'll clinic visit and... I would say it's 50-50. Usually I'll say to the patients, come with all the tests available that you have for the last one or two years. They will bring them in or they will have an internet link and I can download them and see them. Or if they are sent from a physician, the physicians will give me the medical records, electronic medical records, and I will be able to scan through those images. So depending on the condition, uh, whether the patient is naive to the procedure or it's been, he's been sent from a secondary uh, referral, it will change. If I have the data before, I can pre-prepare the uh, clinical examination interview, and I will know exactly what I have to do, or, I mean, from the technical point of view, and I will try to uh, bring those technical informations together with the clinical condition of the patient. Otherwise, during his waiting time, he will fill a specific questionnaires uh, about uh, what's significant about his pain, or his BPI scores, and uh, general condition scores, and uh, medication. And during that time, where the patient fills those documents, I will overview his examination, so I'll have a preview already of uh, what is wrong. Then I will do the consultation, see the patient, examine him, and then discuss in the end with him to input information so I have his clinical condition and his imaging. 
So once you've seen a patient, you know, you've talked to them and, and you've reviewed their imaging, maybe walk us through how you decide, okay, this patient's going to have for simple vertebroplasty, this patient might have vertebral augmentation, plus or minus an implant, and this patient deserves to have ablation. So how are you making those decisions? Again, as I said in the beginning, I mean, the previous question is about whether we're having a palliative setting or a local regional tumor control slash curative setting. So when I have a palliative setting, then I want to treat as many lesions which are around the uh, painful issue as fast as I can do that. In order to do this quick approach, I will tend and trend towards the uh, simple uh, bone augmentation techniques like vertebroplasty, kyphoplasty, depending on how the, the, the lesion is. Now, if there is an instability issue of the lesion, which means that it's uh, too big or it's too necrotic or it affects multiple structural columns of the spine or the pelvis, then uh, I would need something extra to fixate apart from cement. So when there is a risk that the cement is not enough to hold the lesion, then I will look for other techniques, which that includes implants, screws, etc. Now, how do you decide if you're going to do an ablation or not? I think the question again goes to whether I have an active lesion or I have a necrotic lesion. Necrotic lesions can be filled with cement and the risk of tumor growth is quite minimal. Of course, we're talking about a palliative setting. On the other hand, when I want to go local regional tumor control slash curative, I have to use all the armamentarium, all the techniques that I have in possibility to do that local regional tumor control. And in this case, we will do the ablation and cementation and whatever we can to stop that tumor from growing. So the concepts are two palliative versus curative, and when we're talking about palliative and curative, the question is what is the structural stability that we want, and if we want to achieve that with cement, or we need other materials to provide us that structural stability. Dr. Kalikas, I think you've nicely given us the overview on how you see the patient, the imaging, the decisions you're making as to whether you're going for cure or palliation, and then some of the structural aspects that you've just talked about. Let's get personal about this, and maybe you can share with us you know, a particular story about a patient, uh, either good or bad, the, as far as the outcome, or somebody that you became very close to in, in the care of the patient that maybe comes to mind. So bone augmentation is a very rewarding procedure, and that is why I shifted my career towards this kind of treatments. Uh, you actually feel that you're a doctor who is doing something, and the patients are very happy with these procedures. And uh, So usually it's good stories. Uh, one of the most uh, interesting stories I have is a patient who arrived to me with HCC meds. He has survived his HCC uh, for 10 years. Unfortunately for him, uh, he developed bone meds. When he arrived to me, he was already paraplegic because unfortunately his spine meds were not treated in time, so he was already paraplegic. And he had a new, uh, quite 
big uh, metastasis in his uh, humerus bone. And the problem with that was that if he lost that arm or if that arm was casted, he could not support himself because he was paraplegic. So he needed desperately to have that arm and he was not willing with this condition to undergo a surgery, an open surgery. So that is where we developed a percutaneous procedure called a rebar that we later published. And that was one of the first uh, or even the first case of this rebar concept construction that we did uh, in order to give that person his ability to use that arm for the life term that he had uh, still in front of him. And uh, we succeeded, and it was very rewarding for all of us to see that patient survive another couple of years with the use of his hand and arm and able to support himself. And he was always very grateful to us for giving him that ability. So this is one of the real cases that really marked me through the years. And another interesting story is that in the beginning, in the early days of vertebroplast and bone augmentation for these patients, uh, they were bedridden, they were painful, they had some radiotherapy which sometimes worked and sometimes failed. And uh, actually, the nurses in the wards were calling this uh, technique the Lazarus technique because we are actually getting a, a bedridden patient and the next day he was walking. So uh, it was uh, Dr. Kalek is doing the Lazarus technique. And it was quite interesting and rewarding for us as doctors. Those are two great stories. Uh, one of my stories uh, early, early on in the vertebroplasty experience that I had. I trained in 2000 with John Matthies and with uh, Herve Dermond and some of the fathers of the procedure. Subsequent to that, I went on a medical mission trip to Latvia, and I was in Riga, Latvia, and I accompanied a number of different surgeons and they asked me to perform a vertebroplasty because it had never been done in Latvia. Three neurosurgeons watched me in the operating theater while I performed a vertebroplasty. And of course, I was young then. I was a relatively new physician uh, with not a, a lot of experience, you know, maybe only about five years. And I had envisioned that they were going to, you know, give me a patient with an osteoporotic fracture that I could easily treat. And But no, of course not. They had a patient with a sarcoma that had metastasized to the spine. They had already done surgery and that surgical construct had failed on one side. And they were asking me to do a palliative vertebroplasty on a patient who had already been instrumented. And so in this operating theater under the you know, scrutiny of these three very skeptical neurosurgeons from Latvia, I proceeded to perform the first vertebroplasty in Latvia. Happily, I didn't, you know, harm the patient and everything went well. And in fact, the next morning, just as you've described, she was able to get out of bed for the first time in weeks, which was amazing for me and for her. And, you know, that experience was both rewarding and terrifying at the same at the same instance. So uh, I appreciate you sharing your, your stories. I, I've had several very similar stories. So it's October of 2019, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, at least in the United States. Uh, it may be worldwide. I'm and not sure about the world. That. Yes, which is very important. I know 
Those patients can pose unique challenges to us when we're treating their spine and other uh, skeletal metastases. How do you approach a breast cancer patient with metastases? Is there, are there things about that disease that are different and unique that you have to consider? It, it is a very challenging disease, and it's very challenging because uh, it affects all of us, our mothers, our sisters, uh, our wives, and it's it's around us. And and it's a burden for all of us because these are survival patients. Usually, uh, patients which have breast cancer and bone meds live a very, very, very long time. It usually, and most of our patients will not die of their bone meds. They will die from other complications, but not from the bone meds, and, and especially breast cancer. So you need to help them live a good life, live a good quality of life, uh, which they can certainly achieve now with all the therapies that we have for breast cancer. This is exactly the challenging point, is to give a sustainable treatment uh, which will hold in the long run. So usually we try to be as early as we can in those metastases, as curative as we can, and try to support the structure. Now the the issue many times we have with breast cancer is the other therapies that these patients uh, are having which affect the bone quality and then you have to be very careful what is the blastic lesion, what is the lytic lesion and what is the mixed lesion. And uh, you have to define exactly which are those zones and those lesions and which needs to be treated because usually the blastic lesions need not to be treated specifically. Now, again, if you have one blastic lesion and you're going for a curative intent, uh, there is some logic there to try and block that single uh, blastic lesion. But usually we have to define the exact uh, painful areas and treat those. And always remember that these patients have a good prognosis, a long-time prognosis of their disease. It's actually a chronic disease. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I find it to be very challenging. You know, you have in the same patient a sclerotic or, or blastic lesion that's very difficult to access and sometimes very difficult to treat. And then in the next bone, you'll have a lytic lesion that acts in a completely different way. So I, I, I find these patients to be very challenging, but also very rewarding because they're living longer and longer. And so I have many patients that I have been treating over five to 10 years and they come in periodically with a new painful metastasis that we have to address. Uh, they often seek me out primarily and, you know, and skip past their other physicians because they know that I'm going to address their pain and and, and exactly, Charlie, if I can interrupt you, it's exactly what you're saying. Is once these patients, not the breast cancer patients, but all the other patients that have this chronic, like the multiple myeloma patients or chronic treatments, they will seek you out. Once they see the effect that you do in one lesion, they will seek you out. Once they have an outbreak of another area which needs to be treated, they will ask specifically for these treatments, which shows the beneficial effect that we have in their life. Absolutely. Well, I think we could go on and on. Honestly, this is such a uh, an important topic, uh, one that I know you and I are both passionate about. Do you have any uh, final thoughts on physicians out there that are maybe considering getting into this space, maybe are intimidated to some degree, given you know the the disease that we're dealing with and the fact that it's in the spine? Any sort of final thoughts? 
My point is, and as I've said many times before, if I can do it, I think that any average well-trained interventional radiologist can do it, provided that one can follow the guidelines, that there are, there are multiple and well set out there, and there are a lot of talks. In the beginning, with, we, were, we were walking in the dark, but now there's a lot of literature out there that support these kind of treatments. Uh, we do not want to save the world, or, or, or it's not the imminent cure of cancer, but it's a very good treatment which provides what patients ask, quality of life. Nobody wants to die in pain and in, in, a, in a bad condition. All of us want to live as long as, as it's predicted for us in a good setting. And this technique, this treatment, can provide this good setting as long as we can do it. So uh, I will say to anyone who wants to start it, please do follow closely the guidelines, learn the technique, and the world is yours. Yes, and you will benefit a huge number of patients. <laughs> I think so. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Kalikas, thank you so much for your time, and uh, it's been a very interesting discussion and a very important educational activity, so thank you for joining us. Thank you, Professor Titan, for this fantastic interview. I'm very honored and very pleased to have done this with you. Very good.